Welcome to Calvary Albuquerque. We pursue the God who is passionately pursuing a lost world. We do this with one another. Through worship, by the word, to the world. God, we thank you for this chance to read the word. Let we pray that you would uh, just give mercy and uh, speed to those who are coming back from their long trip. to give them the energy they uh, need to make it this last leg to recoup and rest over the next couple of days. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do not create truth. You create truth. We simply discover your truth. Help us to discover your truth tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me tell you about Bill Withers. Bill Withers was in the Navy, and when he got out of the Navy, he needed a job, but he had no real prospects, no skills or talents, really, to speak of. So he ended up getting a job in uh, a factory, just real basic grunt work. But he knew he wanted something more for his life. He wanted something greater. And so he decides that he is going to become a musician, Right? Everyone's dreamed to be in a rock band, I guess. Even though he's never written a song, never really sang, and he doesn't play any instruments. But he is dedicated to it. So he teaches himself three chords on a guitar. And he writes his first song. And you may not have heard of Bill Withers, but you've heard of his music. You know the song, Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone? He knows sunshine when she's gone, right? That's Bill Withers. It goes to number six on the Billboard chart, stays there for 16 weeks. He's like, oh, well, that's easy. I'll just do that again. Teaches himself how to play the piano. Learns a scale, learns a couple more chords, and he writes his new song. Lean on me when you're not strong, right? Lean on me. Goes to number one for 17 weeks. He's got this thing unlocked. He's got runaway hits. It's great when you dream a dream and it just works. But we know it doesn't always go that way, right? It's good to have a goal, to pursue a vision you have for your life, for the future. But sometimes we'll hope and we'll dream and we'll work and give it everything we've got. And it gets snatched from our grasp the tip of our fingers, it turns to ash in our mouth, and it doesn't work out. Let me tell you about Jody Berry. Jody Berry was a waitress at a big national restaurant chain. And they had a contest where to see who could sell the most of a signature dish. And you'd be entered into a drawing. And the grand prize, if you sold the most, is a brand new Toyota. She's like, wow, this is going to change my life. This is going to be, I mean, it's way better than the clunker I've got. This is really going to change my fortunes. And so she pushed it hard. And she was selling those signature dishes left and right and central. And she sold more than anyone else in a restaurant, in the district, in the country. She wins the grand prize. She walks out into the To that day where they're giving out the prize, they take the blindfold off her face, and it's a brand new toy Yoda doll from Star Wars. I think we have a picture. Do we have a picture of that? No? Okay. 
she won the ensuing lawsuit. Let's just say that, okay? So sometimes that's how it goes. We try our best, and it's just not what we thought it was going to be. It can be soul-crushing. The Scripture talks about this. Proverbs 13, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's definitely what can happen. In 2009, my wife and I and our kids, we came off the mission field and felt that God was calling us to another kind of mission field, to, to plant a church for my people, for my people group, Southerners, right? We're a distinct culture, language, cuisine, right? We're our own people group, right? Um, and I just really felt called the Lord to, to step in and call to be a pastor, and we had people who had been praying for us, who were supporting us, who would prophesy over us. I called one guy and said, hey, I think I need to do this. And then he proceeds to tell me all the reasons I was going to tell him why it's a good idea. I'm like, well, okay then, right? And so and God just provided everything. He provided the place for us to meet, a job for us, a, a school for the kids, a house to live in, people who would actually want to go to church and hear this guy, right? And what's so wonderful about the South is that they love Jesus and church is a good thing you should go to and none of it sinks any lower than their head. Unfortunately, the biblical literacy is very, very low. And so we just found people who wanted just to study the Bible, just to learn and to grow. And it was, it was really great. And so before we launch the church, we go to this conference. And um, I go to this conference, and one of the speakers is Ken Graves. And I don't know if anyone knows Ken Graves, but he is a Calvary pastor in Bangor, Maine, right? So just imagine like a woodsman from the wilds of Maine, right? That's him. Whatever you've imagined, that's it. That's almost it. Because he's just a bear of a man. Just like, I mean, his chest is like, and his arms are like my waist, right? It's just, I mean, huge. And his voice is this deep baritone. He's basically a brick wall that loves Jesus, okay? And so I'm saying, Ken, you know, I'm I'm a brand new pastor. And we're starting this brand new church up in Spartanburg. And, you know, what's the one thing that I need to know? And he says, and it sounds like the voice of God when he speaks. I'm not going to do it. But he says, sometimes your vision has to die before God will accomplish it. Okay, thanks, Ken. I don't know what to do with that. I can't argue with him. He'll break me, right? And I'm like, oh, cool, great, thanks. You know, but that is the reality. I'll tell you the rest of that story in a second, but that is the reality sometimes. And sometimes our vision has to die. Or another way we could have named this message is, so no one told your life, told you that your life was going to be this way. Okay? Sometimes life just doesn't work out. And there's many reasons that this happens, but we're going to look at three of them tonight. And we're going to look at the life of Moses to provide the guide. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2, near the end of that chapter, and a little bit into chapter 3 as well. And we're going to look at the life of Moses. And we're not even looking at the exciting parts of his life, right? This is the stuff that you kind of like skim through early in the morning before your first cup of coffee, having quiet time, can't make your eyes open up all the way to get to the good parts. This is the part we're going to look at tonight because I think it's one of the most important because it helps shape who Moses is going to be and what he's going to do and how God is going to use him. Three main points for this. I'm going to go ahead and kind of give you a little peek at the cards here. Why your vision has to die is, number one, God has a better way. Number two, God has a better you. 
And number three, God has a better vision. Exodus 2.11 Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their, and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and he looked that, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out on the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to one of them who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Uh, Pharaoh did? Never mind. But do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard the matter, he sought to kill Moses. Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, we're pretty familiar, I think, with the life of Moses. But let's make sure we're all on the same page. 400 years prior, the Jews had come to Egypt because of Joseph who had become the prime minister of the greatest nation on the earth at that time of Egypt and secured a place for them to live. And they started as honored guests and then over time, over the centuries, became tolerated, then feared, then enslaved, and then killed. In fact, the Pharaoh put out an edict saying that all the male boy babies had to be killed. And so uh, Moses' mom took this this reed basket, this cask or ark, and fashioned it together, placed baby Moses inside, and sent him down the Nile River to escape the wrath of the evil king, right? And his sister is looking on, making sure that he's okay, making sure that, you know, none of the crocodiles want to eat kosher that day, and he survives. And, okay, yeah. Um, Some of the jokes are just for me, guys. Um, That's how I pay attention. So he finally makes it to the other side of the river. And there, lo and behold, is the daughter of Pharaoh himself. And she takes him up out of the water, adopts him, and even lets his biological family help with the raising of him. So it's a crazy story. And I think that Moses, as he grew up in the court of Pharaoh, he had a very clear vision of how he wanted his life to go. I think he knew that he wanted to save the Jews because he knew he was Jewish from the get-go. In fact, his name comes from two backgrounds. She names him Moses because it sounds like the uh, Egyptian word for son, but it also sounds like the Hebrew word for to draw out, like to draw out of the water. So it's a kind of a punny name that she gave him. So he's aware. And his mom weaned him. And so he even got to grow up a little bit in the Jewish household. He knew who he was. In fact, Scripture says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction of the people of God. So he had this idea that, oh, yeah, listen, I am a Hebrew first. I happen to have grown up in the court of Pharaoh. And he has... All these qualifications, he had opportunities that no one else would have had. He would have been exposed to all the right training. Egypt was one of the most academically and scientific uh, rigorous societies on earth at that time. And he probably studied in, in geography and history and grammar, writing, literature, philosophy, music, all those things. There's even reports that he led Egyptian armies victoriously into battle against the Ethiopians. Even Josephus says... Moses was the heir to the throne of Egypt. And so 
Moses could have been the next Pharaoh. He's like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to be the first Jewish Pharaoh, and I'm going to set all the things right. Maybe he sees himself as another kind of of Joseph, where he's like, okay, I'm going to be that first, that first guy in the kingdom, just like Joseph was the second in command over all the kingdom. I'm going to write some laws. Heck, maybe I'll give him citizenship. I'm going to save the Hebrews. I'm going to set all of this right. But the thing is, is that God wasn't going to do it through political action. Moses thinks, most likely, that he's going to help the Jews through his own power and his own actions. And then when he starts to implement that plan and kills the Egyptian soldier, he realizes how wrong he really is. Now, it's, it's kind of a good plan that he has. He, doesn't, he wants to do something good, but he's right in wanting to prevent the beating of one of his fellow Jews, yet his, at the same time, it's, it's premature and he's trying to fulfill his own destiny. Moses tries to make himself Israel's deliverer in a way that made sense to, to him and the way that he thought and the way that he made plans. And as Pastor Skip has said many times, he looked left and he looked right, but he didn't look up and didn't realize that God had something else that he wanted to happen. He had a vision that was much bigger than anything Moses could have conceived of on his own. And now his sin is exposed. They know about the murder. They know about the literal cover-up. And he watches his plan, his vision for the future, die on the vine. See, his plan's all wrong. Moses thought he was going to be God's deliverer, but it's the wrong kind of deliverer. He thought he could do it all on his own. And that was never going to work because that's not what God wanted. And that's not what the people of Israel, the Hebrews, needed. Now as his vision dies in that single moment, it's, it's just gone. Everything he's ever known, he has to flee into the desert where he has nothing. Every hope, every dream has suddenly been cut off and destroyed. We've all been there, haven't we? With Moses in that moment when our plan for the future dies, when it's ripped from our grasp, when the marriage we have isn't the marriage we had always hoped for, when we dream about the future of our child and where they're going to work and where they're going to go to school, and it's just not shaping up the way we thought. Or about that dream job or that degree we're going to get. And it doesn't happen. But sometimes a dream has to die, but that's not the end of the story. Not for Moses and not for us. Jump a little bit with me to chapter 3 of Exodus, looking at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, in those few short verses, we've covered 80 years, right? So no wonder we kind of fly over these a lot. So from his birth to when he kills the Egyptian, it's about 40 years. And when he kills the Egyptian to him hanging out in the backside of the desert with the flock that we just read about is another 40 years. So we've jumped 80 years in the past. And some of the most important moments in Moses' life, I think, happens during just these few verses. Because God has a better Moses in mind. And he has a better you and me in mind as well. So he gets benched, basically, for 40 years, hanging out, taking care of sheep. I mean, at this point in his life, he has been so just humbled, just downcast. He went from being a prince of Egypt. Didn't you see my movie? Ben Affleck was in it, and he was great. 
to, or maybe it was somebody else, anyway, to being a shepherd, where it's just like, okay, I guess I'm taking care of sheep now. And it's not even his own sheep. It's somebody else's sheep. He's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. He has literally nothing. His biggest ambition in life at this time is to love his wife, raise his son, and make sure sheep don't die. The prince of Egypt to a shepherd in the middle of nowhere. And Moses, I'm sure he thought he was done. Asking himself those questions like we all do, is, is this it? Is this all I'm going to amount to? What kind of grief or, or, or bitterness did Moses have to work through? And how long, I wonder, did it take him to work through it? But God has been teaching and preparing Moses in all this because the reality is, is Moses isn't Moses yet. Right? So we think of Moses... And we think of him as going before Pharaoh, rods and the snakes, let my people go, Charlton Hessen on the Red Sea, lawgiver, backside of God, we'll go wherever you go, God. That Moses, right? He's not that Moses yet. He's going to be. God's preparing him to be that Moses, but now he's just shepherd, boy, 80 years old, never done anything, Moses. He went from this, well, let's just call it what it is, pampered life to a life of hardship and being anonymous, really. A couple of years ago, Apple launched a, 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 what they called a landmark product, right? It was a handheld computer with a digital screen and interface with an internal battery. You can carry it everywhere. It's going to revolutionize the world. What was it called? No, it was called the Newton because it came out in 1987. And it cost $700. And there weren't, wasn't Verizon to subsidize it, to make it $200 plus a two-year plan, because Verizon didn't exist, because cell phones didn't exist, and the Internet didn't exist. It was an idea that was there before its time. Now, fortunately, they came back around to that idea and worked much better the next time around. Only took them a few decades, right? But that's the way it is sometimes, is that sometimes we're just not ready yet. We're not the us we need to be. I'm not the Jason I need to be to do what God's calling me to do. He's not the Moses that he needs to be because God still has to prepare him. That preparation process is still ongoing. And while Moses is out there in the desert, he's learning three very, very key, well, probably more than that, but three that I'll highlight, valuable lessons of leadership. Number one, he's learning patience, right? Moses is a pretty impetuous guy. He's a pretty reactionary guy. He sees an Egyptian beating on a Hebrew, boom, dead. Going to take action, going to be decisive. But you can't be that way when you take care of sheep, right? One of you has to be the adult, and the sheep isn't going to be it, right? Because the sheep are like, oh, what's that over there? Cliff, ah, and they're dead, right? So you have to be the grown-up in the situation, like, all right, I'm going to take care of them. And, da, 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 and, you know, and so taking care of sheep, being in an agricultural society for 40 years, it changes a man, right? Have you ever met a, a farmer? Not like a hobby farmer with like three chickens in their backyard, but like a real like Missouri farmer. All right? Those guys, they just are. They just be, right? They've literally watched grass grow. And for an exciting time, they'll watch corn grow, right? They talk slow. They think deeply. Nothing's going to get them moving too fast. Well, I guess I better go put out that fire in the barn. You know, they're patient. It's long work. 
He's also learning humility. He's learning that it's not all about him. He was once the great and powerful prince of Egypt. God threw off his groove and now he's just a shepherd. It's not about me. I'm nothing. It's an important thing that he had to realize. And he also learns what it's like to serve. It's hard work being a shepherd. It's hard work basically giving the best years of his life for others. He's learning that it's about your ability to serve and not to be served. That's really hard for a lot of us, isn't it? Like we we want to to be something great, to be respected, but we don't want to oftentimes do the hard work to get there. You know, we look at someone like Mother Teresa and you're like, oh man, just just a wonderful woman, just gave so much. Everyone respects her regardless of, of age or faith or creed. It doesn't really matter. It's awesome. Nobel Peace Prize winner. She donated all the money to the poor. It was great. But no one wants to be Mother Teresa when she's in the slums and some of the dirtiest places on earth bandaging the wounds of lepers and looking for that lost toe that just fell off, right? No one wants to go through that process. You have to, sometimes you got to do that. It's hard work learning those things, to learning how to be patient, to have humility, to serve. And Moses had to go through that. Sometimes you let your vision die because that's the only way you're going to learn those lessons. You know, but sometimes you're like, well, that's not me. I I could never do that or this. I mean, I had dreams. I had a plan. I had a career. I'm talented. I can't just work in a cubicle. I'm meant for greatness. I can't just be a janitor, man. I can sing. I can't raise seven kids. That's crazy. I, I know a woman... She and her husband have seven kids, ages 3 to 19. When she's finished raising them with her husband, she'll be parenting for 35 years. That's if you put the cutoff at 18 for raising your kids. All the experienced parents are like, no, that's not when you stop. (laughs) I admire her so much because she has learned it's not all about her. She's learned that humility. But that's how you do it. You learn that patience, that service, humility. Because here's the thing. God will use your disappointments to mold you if you don't waste your failures. God will use your disappointments to mold you if you don't waste your failures. There's so much to learn in our disappointments. No one enjoys the discipline at the time. If that block of marble could speak, it would wince and cry out in pain at every chisel hit from the chisel of the of the crafter. But in the end, you still have the Venus de Milo or Michelangelo's David at the end. That chipping away, that molding, that building of character, it takes time. It's painful. But the character that's built in those times of disappointment, of tragedy, of loss, of trial, of depression, it's some of the strongest character you can ever have. Moses wasn't ready. Like we said, Moses wasn't Moses yet. He wasn't ready. He needed to be prepared. It's not just Moses that's like that. We're like that. I mean, there's a lot of people in the pages of Scripture that are like that. Right? You think about Joseph. We spoke about him briefly before. Joseph is this guy who God said, gave him this vision, and literally a vision. You're going to rule over your brothers, even though you're the youngest. You're going to rule over your mom and dad. And he's like, I'm going to be better than you are. Right? He just tells everybody, it's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And they're all, "Mm mm-hmm, right. Sold to slavery, off to Egypt. Took care of that problem, right? And so, is God really going to do that in his life? Oh, yeah. 
But he's going to go through some pretty rough stuff to get there. And so as he's being sold into slavery, he's thinking, well, I guess that's it. I guess this is over. Oh, wait, no. I've been sold into this, this great guy's household. He trusts me. He's respecting. Oh, I've been accused of rape. Okay, going to prison. Awesome. I guess this is it for me. I'm done. Oh, wait, no. I can interpret this dream for this guy. He's going to get me at two more years in prison. Okay. He forgot about me. And then he's elevated to the second in command of all of the nation of Egypt. And he sees his brothers again. Now he's learned his lessons. You notice that Joseph is uncharacteristically calm, quiet, not ready to jump off at the mouth like he was when he was younger. He kind of has this attitude of like, well, the last time your baby brother was, um, you were able to sacrifice him to get yourselves out of trouble. You did it without hesitation. Let's see if you'll do the same, if we can recreate that scenario, shall we? That's his attitude. And that's what he does. He's learned through that land of disappointment to be who he needed to be. He's learned those lessons. He's learned to be patient, to think first, talk second or third, and to really figure out the character of a person before he speaks to it. We all, at some point in our lives, are going to find ourselves in that place. We're going to find ourselves in the place where we're having those thoughts, those questions, is, is this really it for me? Is this all I'm going to do? I, I thought I had so much more before me. I thought my life was going to be so much more different. But I do want to encourage you because I want you to know that, that God is going to grow you. He's going to shape you in this time. But I also know that when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to believe that. You might be thinking, yeah, I know he has lessons for me in this place that I'm in, but I'm just, I'm just so brokenhearted. Jesus came close to the brokenhearted. Yeah, but I just feel so vulnerable. But he's a strong tower, a shield, a horn of strength. I just don't have the fire I used to have. It's just embers. But a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. God is with you in all of these circumstances. No one in the pages of Scripture went it alone. No one in this room goes it alone. Not a single believer goes it alone, even in the darkest shadow of any night. You are not alone, and God will use your disappointments to mold you if you don't waste these failures, because He is with you. Let's look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire and the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, this is that farmer speak again. I will now go inside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. Well, I guess I'll go look at that bush. All right. Okay. Verse four. So then the Lord saw that he turned aside to look and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So God had a better plan for him, not political, revolutionary. He had a better Moses in mind, one that was patient, humble, willing to serve. Now he's about to give Moses a better vision. He said, you know, remember the plan you had before? I've got something very similar to that. You are going to be the savior of Israel, but not like that. Something bigger, something better. 
And what God tells Moses at the burning bush is that basically, hey, Moses, your vision, your, your scope, it was just too small. It was very, very human. God didn't just want to change. He wanted something radical. He wanted a revolution. Not slaves, but soldiers. Not captives, but conquerors. Not a visiting tribe in a foreign land, but a brand new nation. That's what he wanted Moses to do. And Moses couldn't even see it. And God knows. Look what God tells him. We'll read these verses quickly. Verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses hid his face where he was afraid to look upon God's smart move. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrow. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, and to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and so on. In verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God basically tells Moses that he's been waiting, he's been watching, he's been working. He says, I've seen the oppression. I've heard the cry. I know their sorrows. And I'm going to rescue them from their slavery. I'm going to take them out of that old life into a brand new full reality of my blessing. And Moses, you're my guy. And Moses, if you know the story well, is like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm not. I tried this. I don't, I mean, point of order, I'm sorry. I don't know if you remember. I tried this. It didn't go well. And God basically tells him, yeah, I know. I haven't tried yet. How about I take a crack at it? He says, listen, Moses, your way was all wrong. You weren't even who you needed to be yet. We've got something so much bigger and better planned. I think about the Apostle Paul, right? Paul, who started as Saul, and he has this idea. He's like, you know what? I know what God's plan for my life is. I'm going to study I'm going to be smart. I'm going to adhere to the law. I'm going to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. Everyone's going to look up to me. They're going to have like little Saul of Tarsus dolls that little kids can look up to. It's going to be great. I'm going to be zealous for the Lord. And I'm going to make sure that no one will think poorly of the Lord God of Israel anywhere. I'm going to defend the faith and I'm going to be smart enough to do it. It's going to be great. And then he meets the Lord God of Israel on the path. And he says, who are you, God? He says, I'm Jesus. And I suspect that you already knew that. That's why you're kicking against the goads, Saul. And then he goes through trials and tribulations and blindness. And he spends three years in the Arabian desert thinking, well, I thought I had a plan. I guess not. I guess this this is all there is for me. I, I guess I'm done. Until Barnabas comes and taps him on the shoulder. Hey, I think God's God's got something else for you. Let's go find out what it is. Come on. And he realizes, whoa, man, I'm glad I studied. <laughs> I'm going to go to every city everywhere and tell people about Jesus, especially the places they never even heard the name before. God oftentimes has to let our plan fail. And then as we enter that land of just the kick to the guts, 
our heart being broken in half and our spine going to jelly of depression and, and disappointment of like, well, now I don't know what to do to restore that and make it better, bigger, grander than we ever thought or could hope or dream or even imagine. So we started a church in South Carolina. And it was great. We um, were in this town of uh, not very big, but 11% of the population was in college. Uh, there's a ton of, of college students there. We're really reaching out to them and doing and doing some really great ministry. I, I was working full time at Costco, and also spending 25 to 30 hours a week on my weekend messages. I saw my wife for a half an hour a week. It was great, and <laughs> you know, my and my kids are like, "Who's that man in the house?" Um, and it was great. We're seeing people be saved, people be baptized, go into ministry, go on mission trips, talking to their to their neighbors and colleagues and, and family, and and people leaving just these terrible, terrible situations. It was great. And then uh, this big uh, mega church moved a multi site into our town that had the budget and the lights and the worship leaders and kind of. Everyone wanted to go over there. Actually, that's not true. Oh, three. Three megachurches moved into our town with multi-sites, with the budget, the lights, and the sound. And we went from yay to yay. And we realized, well, maybe this is it. Maybe we're, maybe we're done. We, we prayed it through. We talked to our board. We talked to other people we trusted in their wisdom. And, and the consensus we got was, hey, you know... Um, we started this church in faith. We feel like God's telling us to close it, so we're going to finish it in faith as well. We're going to put this thing to bed. We're going to bury this church and get people plugged into other churches that we like in the area. And I guess God called me to be a pastor just for this, this time, this moment, and then that's it. And I was good with it um, until I, we, I, the, the day it was really real for me is when we sold our sound system at a yard sale. And I was like, oh, we're really not having service anymore. <laughs> and I was like, okay, right on. And there was this, this moment, this time of grieving, you know, of that sense of loss and, and just feeling lost and not knowing what to do next. And so I was still working at Costco, and they brought me up into leadership and trained me and gave me a team of guys and, and we're serving in a local church. And we're sticking around because we're like, well, maybe God has something else for us here. And after... Six, nine months, we're like, okay, we'll feel freedom to go on to do something else. I think we're done. We can go anywhere with my job. It's like, you know what? Let's go back to Albuquerque. You know, my, uh, my wife's uh, family is a lot older. They're in kind of poor health. We'll go there. There's like three locations here, uh, Eubank, Renaissance, and Coors. Uh, and... And we, we'll just go, we'll, we'll, we'll go to Calvary, we'll serve there, we'll drink coffee, it'll be great. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Just have a regular family. I'll get to see you for a whole hour a week. This will be great, right? I'll double my time. And I'm here two months and I get a text. Hey, you're ordained, right? Yeah, why? No response for six hours. Don't do that to people. I'm like, okay. And finally, they're, hey, come talk to us about something. And I'm like, uh-huh. And they're, uh, they're like, there's this job you should apply for that we're looking at. And I'm like, and so we're praying. And we're like, I thought I was done with full-time ministry. I, 
I don't know. I, and we prayed it through and we're like, okay, let's do it. So they hire, so the big mega church with all the lights and the sound and the budget hires me to be in charge of multi-sites. This is the definition of irony. Go look it up later. It's, and what's so funny is that in that time where, where we had, we had closed our church and we're, we're talking about the pros and cons of, of what a multi-site church looks like and how to do it well and, and what the, some of the pitfalls of it and how this church, we kind of like how they do it actually in this church. There's some problems with that and if X, Y, or Z happens, it's going to be really struggling for them. And, and then we, I don't know why we talked about it so much, but now I do because now for the very first time in ministry or my entire life really, I walk into a situation and I go, I know what to do there. I know a good answer for this as opposed to, you know, praise Jesus. We're just going to pray about it and we're going to work hard. We're going to figure it out. Right. I was like, no, I know what to do. This is great. But I had to go through that time of loss and to go through the time of, of just like my kin was right. My vision has to die for God to do what he really wanted to do all along, which was prepare me for this thing. And I don't know what the next thing is. I'm, I'm enjoying this thing right now. I have no plans to go anywhere else. This is great. But I'm got my eyes open a little bit more to realize, okay, I, I see how God works now. I see how he does this. And I, one of the things I realized, by the way, is that I am super good not being the number one guy. I'm really happy not. I'm, I'm happy. I could be three. I bet I could be the number three guy. Like I can be that guy like who has the bronze medal for curling in the Olympics where I'm like super stoked about it. And you're like, do you train for curling? I don't know. Like no, I'm super good there. So you learn a lot of things when you go through that process. So here's the three things. God has a better way. Oftentimes, our plans are so small. They're so limited. And honestly, they're easily fulfilled by us. I've got the skills, the talents, the backing, the right people. I can accomplish this. What if you had a plan that was impossible? What if you had a plan that only God could achieve? What would that look like? He has something better for you. Have you been there? Have you been there where you just realized this is over? This is just not going to happen. I, I think I'm done. I don't think my life's going to go the way I thought it was. God has a better you. Are you letting him carve you? Are, are you enjoying the days of small things and enjoying the lessons that those small mundane things can teach? Are you just like that farmer we talked about, just being, just meditating, ruminating, contemplating, percolating, pontificating, just being and letting God work in you in that moment and so could get all in and figure out why he has you there. Have you been there? Have you lived the mundane life, the, I thought I was going to do this, but now I'm just raising kids. Or, or maybe I'm just caring for an elderly parent Maybe you're living the life that if you put it on Instagram, it gets zero likes. It's just so ordinary, uninspiring. God, I guess I'm done. This is, oh well. He's teaching you. He wants to turn that regret into diligence. God has a better vision. And it may blow you away. It may scare you. And I hope it does. If God gives you a new vision, he rescues the vision that died and says, this is what it actually is. And you're like, okay, I can do this. Breathing, okay. And you're like, this scares me, God. He's like, good, should, because you can't do it. Oh, good, I'm glad we're both on the same page here. But we can. 
I think you can, God, and I'm glad to be along for the ride. He's going to show you how much he can accomplish, how much bigger he wants that vision to be. And God can take you there. He can show you the vision that he's had in his mind all along. Let's wrap up with these three final questions. Do you have a vision that needs to die? Do you have a plan that you created for your life that needs to die? Do you need to surrender it over to God? Is what you're dreaming for something that you can make happen? Or something that only God can do? What is God adding to your character? Now the question is not, does God need to add something to your character? Because you can go, no, I'm good. I'm pretty rad. What is God adding to your character? If you can't answer that, that should shake you a little bit. God, what are you adding to my character? What do you need to add to my character? Do I need more patience? Do I need more diligence? Do I need humility? I thought I was the best at humility. (laughs) What is God adding to your character? Where is he molding you? He wants to change you. But But you'll miss out if you're not willing to let the trial that you're in be the catalyst to change you. And what are you scared to pray for? Is this something that only God can do? Sometimes I'm surprised about how much our prayers can change. I'm surprised that you you might be a a parent with a, a, a grown child and they're not living a life that's godly. They've they've strayed away. They've they've gone a, a far afield from their faith they used to have and. What you want to pray is, God, just give them that, that faith they have when they're back in high school. But what God is doing is he's saying, well, yeah, I know that you, you did the church thing when you were in high school. And now you're in this different place and I'm changing you and doing all the things to prepare you to where you'll actually be surrendered to me. So you'll have a white, hot, fervent faith that changes the world. That's what I really wanted for this child. And then you go, oh, it seems kind of silly to pray for the faith they had back in high school. I want this. God, I just want to marry just a, just a good man. There's so many people who are looking for spouses, looking for relationships, and I just want to marry a good man. And then they marry them, and they realize they are not good. But they stick it out. They go, okay, this is who I prayed for. I'm not going to stop praying for them now. And then you realize that God, through your prayers and your diligence and your patience and your ability to love them even when they are not lovable, They become surrendered to Christ in a whole different creation. A man who inspires, a man who disciples other men. And you're like, God, I don't want a good man. I want a godly man. That was what you wanted me to pray for all along. Pray for something that scares you. Something that only God can do. God, I don't want my neighbor to be saved. I want my neighborhood to be saved. And there's no way I can reach them all. What do you say? Your vision, it may have to die, but that could be the best thing for you. Let's pray. God, it shakes us. Some of us love to have every detail of our lives planned out. Other of us, we wing it. But God, not knowing 
even just a general idea can scare us. And Lord, some of the things that we plan and we hope for are good things. We want to be in ministry. We want to have godly kids. We want to to reach our neighborhood, but then we realize that you had something more. Lord, we realize that the disappointments of it not going the way that we thought It's just your way of chiseling us, of shaping us, of molding us, and instilling the character into our lives that you always wanted us to have. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to cling to you in all those things. And then, God, when you show us the full scope of what you had in your heart all along, let our hearts rejoice with it, God, knowing that even if we don't see the fulfillment of that vision, that we can be encouraged knowing it still will be fulfilled. Because every word that you say comes true. Lord, you don't change. You don't lie. You don't lack in power. You don't lack in wisdom. And you use all of those things in its perfect timing, in your perfect will, to glorify yourself. Lord, glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What binds us together is devotion to worshiping our Heavenly Father, dedication to studying His Word, and determination to proclaim our eternal hope in Jesus Christ. For more teachings from Calvary Albuquerque and Skip Heitzig, visit calvaryabq.org.